Hi, this is the Mido podcast. I am Ashley. And I'm Megan. And today we have a very special guest. Um, her name is Sophia Kulimans, and uh, she's a genetic counselor over at Rady's Children's Hospital in San Diego. Hi, Sophia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for having me. It's, um, it's exciting to be on a podcast. <laughs> We're excited too. <laughs> um, so for our audience today, we are going to talk to Sophia um, about genetic counseling, how to read genetic results, and the types of genetic tests that you can get done when you are on any type of medical journey. Um, Obviously, for us, uh, we're talking about mitochondrial diseases, but this can be done for any genetic disease, um, and it pops up quite, uh, quite often when doctors are trying to figure out um, uh, when your child has uh, different needs, um, just to figure out where they stem from, and also to help you navigate your journey in figuring out medically um, or maybe even throughout therapy of things that your child may or may not need. Um, so I'm really excited about this podcast because um, Sophia, actually, I met her at uh, Radies Children when we were going through Angie's diagnosis. And um, I don't believe that Megan and Sophia have worked together yet, but um, oftentimes at Radies, um, we all in our, in, we all end up meeting each other in some way or another. So, uh, let's go ahead and get started. <laughs> um, so Fia, so I, I'm going to let you go ahead and talk, but, um, let's just start with, uh, what genetic counseling is. Cause I think a lot of families don't really understand, um, don't really understand it. Yeah, that's, I think a lot of people don't necessarily have a reason to have encountered a genetic counselor before. So it's a common question that I get. Genetic counselors um, in general have a, we, there's a genetic counseling degree. So it's kind of a balance between human genetics, molecular genetics, and then also the counseling part of it. And different programs are set up differently, but in general, we're trained also in um, kind of counseling or social work type of approaches. So it's this weird meld of both the science and the people part. And genetic counseling in general is a process of getting different information and helping people sometimes make decisions with that information or at least understanding how that information um, is, is maybe part of their family or how to use that with respect to their family and themselves. Um, genetic counseling exists in a lot of different specialties, which I think kind of makes sense because genetics overlaps with so many different parts of medicine. Um, before Radies, I was working for a, um, a diagnostic laboratory in cancer genetics. So a very different world than a children's hospital. Um, but there's also genetic counselors in the prenatal world where most of their patients are probably women who are pregnant. Um, there's also genetic counselors who work in laboratories genetic counselors that see patients that maybe have a personal history or a family history of different types of cancers. And then there's a lot of different specialty areas within all of that. So there's genetic counselors in a lot of different areas, sometimes where you might expect, and then other times places that are kind of behind the scenes. I think the first time that I um, saw genetic counselors when I found out I was pregnant with Angie. And the reason that um, 
genetic counseling brought up had nothing to do with mito or there was there was no really uh, alarm or concern or anything at the time it was just simply that i was pregnant and that i was on that that edge of what they they say is um well without better better words saying that i was old <laughs> um, <laughs> so um so that was when it was first introduced to me and i was actually pretty like nervous because in my head, not knowing anything about genetic counseling, I was like, well, there's nothing wrong. <laughs> like, why, why would I need to talk to a genetic counselor? And it was actually kind of worrisome. Um, so I, I did actually talk to a couple genetic counselors early on, but it, again, it really had nothing to do with what my actually pre my pregnancy was. It wasn't until later when I met you that um, I saw a different side of, of genetics. So it's, I'm glad that you brought that up because you're right. It, it goes over so many different fields. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people have the idea that if you meet with a genetic counselor, it means that you're doing genetic testing, but usually it's more um, information about testing and whether or not it even makes any sense and why someone might do it or why someone might not do it. And, and it's, not typically something where you go for the genetic counseling appointment and then simply by going, you've already provided some sort of consent to do something next. It's usually just a conversation about, about the situation that you're, that you're having. Yeah. And that was actually our experience. Um, when Troy was getting diagnosed, we didn't have a diagnosis, but we had seen a neurologist and they said, well, let's send you to a genetic um, counselor. And, you know, she really just sat down and spoke with us and, looked at it was interesting the things that you she was actually looking at like the different whorls that are in his hair she looked at his hands and you know all these different things we actually didn't do any testing at that time but um it was just kind of a uh, conversation about different possibilities or different things that we could do um and just you know her kind of taking an overall look at troy and um you know just see seeing her thoughts before we decided to do anything so definitely there's you know, there can be a progression or it can just be a conversation about um, your child or, or you yourself. What I think is fun too about um, being a geneticist, at least from, I'm mean, obviously I'm not a geneticist, but <laughs> looking um, at your position is you are a constant researcher. Because I imagine that things pop up all the time that you want to learn more about or, um, I mean, genetics is crazy just in general. There's just so many different variations and so many different types of um, either illnesses or diseases or dysfunctions that it probably constantly causes you to research things, right? That is very true. Um, and there is a difference between a geneticist and a genetic counselor. A geneticist is a is a physician, so they've gone to medical school and residency and then fellow a fellowship in in genetics and um, a genetic counselor hasn't done those things it's a it's a master's a graduate in a graduate program and the one of the um, I think maybe bigger differences that as a family you might notice is that a geneticist can do a clinical exam so when you were talking about looking at hair whorls and all of that kind of stuff a geneticist is able to um, look at the traits of someone and maybe see a pattern, a constellation of, of findings altogether that would make them think about a particular syndrome. And a genetic counselor might be able to do that only because of your work experience. But in general, 
clinical exam is out of our scope. So we oh. are much more about, um, about talking through um, a family history or the, the questions that someone might have and the information. Thank you. For, yeah, no, definitely. Thank you for explaining that. I think that's really important to understand. Yeah. And I think for that reason, sometimes genetic counselors can be a little bit, um, not to make a generalization, but can, can sometimes be a little bit easier to get a hold of than a geneticist, um, simply because we're not an MD. So our, our workflow looks a little bit different too. Um, but you're absolutely right that genetics is changing all the time. There's you know, every couple of weeks I get a gene that um, was first described last year or this year, and we have to quick go look for some literature and see who's written about it and see if, um, you know, what the authors are currently doing. And um, it is, it's exciting. It's definitely also a challenge to stay on top of all of those things. I can imagine. And it must be kind of exciting in a sense too, because you do get to continue to learn it. I mean, you might be out of the classroom, but it's definitely continuing education. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I was talking with a friend about this the other day and I kind of take it for granted that my job always is changing. And I, one of my colleagues and I, we joke about, oh, I have to go get smart about that. So we will, so we'll go and like spend a little bit of time. Oh, I have to quick go get smart about that gene before we start talking about it. Um, and I, I, I think I, just because that's how it has always been, I'm like, oh, I, you know, had I not been in this field, I think that people in other positions talk about how they're bored or that they're not being challenged. And I feel like I have to go get smart a lot. So, <laughs> so it definitely, um, it is kind of, it is fun to be part of that. Well, I know uh, with Troy, he just actually, uh, received a new genetic diagnosis and our geneticist that we now see said that definitely if he was tested 10 years ago, we wouldn't have even had this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So it definitely shows how much science is improving and we're finding so many more things when it comes to the genome and, and, and our genes in general. So it's very interesting. Yeah. I think our, our, um, you know, our knowledge about what genes are doing changes as we study them, um, but also our tests change. So the way that we're looking at the genes has, has changed over time. Um, like in, in Mito, I think that we have learned that looking at different tissue types may be important. Um, and I think the other part that changes is that our knowledge about different genetic diseases change. So sometimes our the actual gene itself we learn more about, but other times it's actually what it can look like in different people and that can change over time too. So um, like in a lot of mitochondrial conditions, we're seeing now that it can look very different in different people, even in the same family. And so there might be a lot of overlap across different conditions. And that goes for genetics in general. Before we had genetic testing, genetic syndromes would be kind of like bucketed or classified based on all the features that you might see about someone. But as we've been able to actually figure out what the underlying reason is, sometimes people that we've put into the same bucket actually have multiple different genes that are not related to each other, or maybe they're in the same pathway, but they're completely different genes. Or sometimes there's maybe two buckets of people that seem very different, 
but when you actually look at the underlying genetic mechanism, it's the same gene. It just looks different in different people. So I think, um, I think that is exciting, but it also poses a pretty big challenge when we're trying to figure out a diagnosis. Yeah, and like you said with Mido, I know that we've heard the whole time since um, Troy's diagnosis when he was two, is that someone can have the same deletion, same genetic information, and their disease can progress completely differently. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes it very difficult to, to make any sort of real prognosis or anything like that, so. I imagine that it is very frustrating on the family side to get that type of information when people keep hedging about prognosis. But I think part of it is that it is different in different people and providing um, a timeline for how someone might develop is not often helpful from like just from the family perspective, but also we just don't always know. So I think that's why a lot of it ends up being so gray. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I, I was just trying to sort my, my thoughts before um, I spoke, but um, I agree and I, uh, and I disagree. I think that as a family perspective of, of like when you first get your diagnosis, yes, you, you want to know everything and you want to know who's exactly like you so that you can understand the road that you're on. But at the same time, it, it kind of is, I'm going to stretch here, but it's positive too, because you see some things that you, you don't want your life to turn out as you don't want to have happen to your child. So you can kind of hold on to that hope of all our genetics are different. So maybe our road will be different. And oftentimes with mitochondrial diseases, it is um, for the exact reason that we, we were just talking about of, of everybody is affected differently. And even if you have the same gene affected, um, it's it, your whole body is made of, of different genes. And like you said, in the same family, you could have the same disease and it could look two different ways. So um, I think it's both. I think it's, Yes, it's frustrating that you, you want the answers, but sometimes when you get those answers, you don't want them anymore and you want to hold on to that hope. Um, and that's what's so fascinating about genetics. I mean, I, I, before uh, having Angie, I mean, the, the most I thought about genetics is that I look exactly like my mom. Um, <laughs> and, and sometimes when I was next to my dad, you could see the similarities but beyond that, I never really thought about actual genes. Um, and now with this road with Angie, it's, it's very interesting. And it's, it's crazy to see your body is just like a galaxy. Like you have the galaxy. I mean, you have stars everywhere and every single one is totally different. And, and we're really not that different than that. I mean, I know that's another stretch of, of comparisons. But in the realm of understanding, um, it kind of isn't. Um, so I can see how your job can be, um, I, I can see how your job could also be frustrating because you want to give those answers, but at the same time, you can't. Um, it's, it's just not where we are with science, but it's a constant learning pattern. Um, and the more people you get to uh, um, meet, the better, because then it gives you more experience for the next family. Mm -hmm. Um, so why don't we, I, I know earlier 
when I, when we started the podcast, we, when we started recording, I said we were going to talk about genetic counseling, how to read the results, and then the type of tests, but I'm going to switch those last two because um, now I realize that that doesn't really make sense, the order that I put it in. Um, uh, why don't we talk about the types of genetic tests, and then we can talk about the gen- how to read genetic results. Um, so what, what kind of genetic tests can people get done? So in the pediatric world, there are certain tests that are more common, um, and that changes in different specialties. So, um, I think sometimes it's helpful to take a big step back and you are talking about how, um, our genes are, it's kind of like a little galaxy in your body, right? And we have over 20,000 genes in almost all of our cells. And so if you think about them, like they are little books, little instruction manuals that code for all of the different parts of our body. And some of them are things like traits that you can identify when you're talking about how you look a lot like your mom. Maybe you can kind of see which genes that might be. Some of them are more about, um, about um, controlling where different tissues grow as, as a baby is growing, kind of an embryology. Sometimes some of those genes are controlling different chemicals that are important in different pathways. And um, the way that we do testing reflects some of that. So for example, of those 20,000 genes or so, uh, many of them come in pairs. We get one from mom and one from dad. And there are some tests that can look to see if you really have two copies of large sections of your genetic material, or if maybe there's a piece that's missing that includes a couple genes or a piece that's extra, um, a duplication that maybe would explain what's happening in someone. And in pediatrics, that's probably the first test. We call it a microarray, but it's basically taking the genetic material and chopping it up into tiny pieces and then looking to see if there really are two copies of everything. Um, That type of test is is um, used a little bit more when someone might have multiple different medical issues that seem unrelated to each other. And sometimes a geneticist, a geneticist exam can help us think about doing a microarray. Um, other types of tests are more specific about the genes where they actually go through a gene letter by letter, like a spell check, and then also look for pieces like a sentence that's missing or a sentence that's extra. It's closer, it's looking at it closer than a, maybe a microarray might. And those types of tests sometimes come in panels. Sometimes you might look at five genes or 20 genes or a couple hundred genes all at the same time. Um, so for example, sometimes there might be a panel that's about um, uh, microcephaly. So it's all about genes that are somehow related to maybe why someone might have a smaller head. Or um, there might be an epilepsy panel where all the genes are somehow related to seizures but some of the genes are also related to other medical issues and some of them really are just seizures. So you can kind of like lump them all together. Um, and then for Mito, it is a little more complicated as you know. So um, if, you, if you do testing of the blood, you're only looking at those types of cells. Um, and for mitochondrial functions and for our mitochondria, um, our, mitochondria our mitochondria is where our, the food we eat and the the air we breathe is turned into energy that we can use. And so that includes lots of different genes. So there are, there are probably over a thousand genes that are just in our regular um, genetic material that are all part of that process. And then there's the actual 
genes in the mitochondria, the mitochondrial genes, and there's just 37 of them there, but all of those are important in that process. And so doing testing for something like that um, is a little bit different. Sometimes we still start with the blood. Um, sometimes we can do testing of the saliva or um, someone might have a muscle biopsy where a piece of the muscle is looked at and they're looking for um, the mitochondrial DNA, but they're also looking to see how the muscle actually looks like underneath the microscope because there can be clues that might give someone an idea about what to think. Um, and then sometimes people can also look at the urine looking also for mitochondrial DNA. It's so fascinating. Like just hearing you talk and, and just thinking about like what we've done. You know, every time I, I hear about the tests, it's just fascinating to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's crazy what we can, what we can do. Um, so, well, I guess, uh, for us, we use, and I, we've talked about this in other podcasts. We did, we did the the blood um, uh, first, and we tested Angie, myself, and Andrew. Um, and I believe Megan, you just did that as well, right? Uh, well, we did. Um, we first did saliva. Um, well, I'm sorry, I should say we did a muscle biopsy first, um, mm -hmm. and they didn't do any genetic testing on the muscle biopsy until quite a few years later, but like you said, they looked at the fibers and they said he had red ragged fibers, which are um, kind of a telltale sign for mitochondrial disease. Um, and then we just recently, we did a clinical exome um, where we did have um, Troy's father and myself. Um, and that's the first time we had done that. And the reason I bring that up, oh, sorry, Megan, go ahead. Oh, I just said that was blood. The last one was blood. Um, and the reason I bring that up is just to have our listeners understand that based off of what you, what you were just talking about, those are the, the um, types of genetic testing that both Megan and I have had done in our family. Um, is there, so, and I, I actually, uh, over our last meeting found out about the urine test, which I didn't know about in previous uh, years, which I think is, crazy too. Like I, I never thought about it, but now that I understand it, I'm like, Oh, that, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, testing for mitochondrial can be difficult. And part of it is because there isn't a specific biochemical marker that is seen across all mitochondrial conditions. So instead it's like you're gathering lines of evidence about a person and trying to see if it matches or if maybe something else is a, is a better fit. Um, so that is part of the reason why there's so many different ways of looking at how the mitochondrial are working. And sometimes it's DNA, but there's all those other types of tests like the muscle biopsy or different, um, looking at different levels of different chemicals in, in someone to see if that maybe would be the reason um, or matches a mitochondrial function issue. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny when you think about it because we have so many thousands of genes, but every gene has hundreds or thousands of letters that make it up. And sometimes it's just one letter that's different that changes how the gene works. And when you think about, um, you know, like us as an individual person, if you think about yourself, 
you yourself have letters that are in your genes that have never been seen before. And some of them might be in some important places in your genes, and some of them might be in areas that we don't really know what it codes for. Or it's a non-coding region and maybe has a less important role, but it's hard to know for sure. And that's part of the reason why the types of tests that you two are talking about sometimes can include both parents. Because if you're doing a test that's looking at um, not hundreds anymore, but thousands of genes all at the same time, it can help a laboratory um, analyze that so that if someone is looking at a gene and they see a letter that they're not sure about and they wonder if it could maybe be the reason for why that gene isn't working, they can look to see if the parents have it because that can sometimes help them. If it's new in a person for the first time, sometimes that might make, might make them think that maybe that's more likely to be the answer. If it's maybe also seen in mom or also seen in dad and they don't seem to have those health issues, sometimes it might be more likely that it's just a family variant of normal that's maybe a it's a difference in how you might spell something. It's like the word gray or the word gray where it's G-R-A-Y or G-R-E-Y and you, you see it and you're not confused about what it means. And so there's probably a lot of spellings in our genes that are like that. It's just hard to know right away when we haven't seen it before. Um, that actually uh, brings up a good point. Um that I think would be great if we could cover it. Um, uh, the reason that, so going back to testing and why we test the mom and we test the dad with mitochondrial diseases, is the old school thought is that mitochondrial diseases are only inherited by the mother, which in today, we realize that's not true. It, it does not mean that just because the word mitochondria um, because uh, your mitochondria comes from your mother doesn't mean that it specifically uh, is inherited that way. Um, and that kind of brings us to mitochondrial DNA and nuclear DNA and why it is important to test the father. Mm-hmm. Our, like, like we were talking about, our, the processes, all the functions in mitochondria are very complicated. And it takes more than just the 37 genes that are in the mitochondria to do all of that. So there are a number of nuclear genes. Um, so in, in the rest of the genetic material in the nucleus that also play a role in how a mitochondria functions. So there are many different types of spelling changes that are not necessarily in the mitochondrial DNA, but are in the nuclear DNA that can affect um, how the mitochondria works and then ultimately might be the, the reason why someone has mitochondrial disease. And the reason why you would include both parents in that is to help us understand the nuclear DNA. So, um, so you're right, it, we hear mitochondrial disease, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's from the mitochondrial DNA, um, which is kind of a confusing thought. So um, it's just that what the mitochondrial is doing is, is multifaceted and it, it also requires many genes that are from the nuclear DNA. I think that's what makes, uh, like you were saying, mitochondrial diseases or, or, or even dysfunction is, is complicated in that sense because um, it's there's no black and white. There's a ton of gray and gray <laughs> areas um, that, uh, that you as a genetic counselor and doctors and scientists and researchers all have to look at and it's just so much more vast Um, and it also leads into why every child is so completely different it's just a very complex um, area I mean 
it's again going back to that word it's just fascinating on on how in depth it can get yeah it requires a team of people um every time you know and often it's a team of people that aren't necessarily even in that city um like for example dr haas has a whole international group of people that he sometimes talks to when there's cases that he's not sure about or or he's maybe teaching about cases and that it's a whole team of people that are involved with each with each family exactly and i i feel at least for i can't speak for everyone i'm going obviously just speak for myself but that is um it's kind of uplifting to know that um like for like your example with dr haas knowing that he is in communication with other doctors and other researchers and they're constantly speaking with each other on new cases um, it helps a lot. It helps to feel that you, you do have that team because this road, you oftentimes feel very alone. And, um, we're really lucky because we're in Megan and I, because we're in San Diego and we do have this amazing team at Radies, which obviously includes you. Um, and it definitely helps Andrew and I get through, get through our journey and navigating and knowing that we had someone to talk to. Um, and I, I know that's not the case for every, everybody going, um, down this road. And, and I, I'm very thankful that we are here and that we do have this team. Um, cause like when Angie was in the hospital, it was, it was really nice obviously to know that Dr. Haas was with us and that he was on the phone every day with, with different people discussing it and trying to get the best knowledge that he can. And I think that that's important for any family with mitochondrial disease, just knowing that they have that strong team behind them and that they're not alone. And I think I completely agree because for us, um, Troy sees Dr. Wigby um, and we just saw her for the first time um, probably about a month ago um, with Troy's new um, genetic test. And he has a completely different diagnosis now. And just to know how important it is that you do see a geneticist, um, because that can really help you on your pathway. Granted, um, Troy uh, was diagnosed with Soto syndrome type 2, um, Malin's uh, disease. So he doesn't, there's not necessarily a different treatment but just understanding that there's, you know, those different genes that are now in play and, you know, looking at some of the possible things that might happen to his body and his functions in the future. And then um, there were so many other different genes that Dr. Wigby looked at and said, okay, I'm gonna have to do research on these genes and see so we can, you know, kind of be ahead of the game if Troy starts having symptoms of different things. So it's just, you know, a geneticist is such a huge, important part of the team when it comes to your diagnosis and treating your child and making sure that they have, you know, the best possible care that they can. So a team is so important. I want to add to um, not just geneticists, but genetic counselors. Well, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but that Megan is a really great example of having testing done 10 years ago and then testing done again now. Um, and obviously I'm not in your shoes, Megan, but on, as an outsider looking in, um, and what I would suggest to families that reach out to me now is that if you did get genetic testing done five, even five years ago, and, and you're confused or, or you don't understand the results, 
I would suggest to do it again because fi- even five years ago, there was, there was different testing. Um, especially if it's 10 years ago, I think it is good to try and test again. Not necessarily if, um, if you know for sure what your diagnosis is, but if there was ever a gray area to redo it, because, um, there's, it doesn't mean that the genetic counselor or geneticist or your doctor that was wrong. It just means that our research is different. Now, what we have available for you guys to be able to work with is different. And you've made new discoveries that help you to be able to diagnose or to explain a diagnosis. So if there's anyone that is listening right now that had um, testing done before and and you're still just not 100% sure, go ahead and do it again and, and make sure that you do get your team like we're talking about. Not everybody has that available to them, but it is important for you to feel confident and and comfortable with the people that you're working with and um Megan and I both both have had great experiences here in San Diego and and I'm I'm lucky because we are talking to Sophia and she was on our team um and that uh really made Andrew and I feel so much more comfortable knowing that we you had our back basically knowing that you were invested in in Angie's diagnosis and, and learning about her because she is an individual. Um, and uh, we wouldn't have done our, our testing differently because we did get an actual diagnosis. But if we hadn't, I would definitely test her again. Um, and sorry to keep, continue to ramble, but um, we did do further genetic testing on myself to understand um because Angie's diagnosis was inherited from me, we wanted to better understand my health history. And I think that that is important too. Once you have a child that is diagnosed with a mitochondrial disease, to understand your own DNA better to see what your own future holds. Sorry about that. (laughs) And Troy was in a complete gray area, which is one of the reasons we did testing again, he doesn't have necessarily any markers for a mitochondrial disease. Um, it's just ha- mainly how he presents um, that and his uh, muscle biopsy that he's been diagnosed with Lee-like syndrome. Um, so it is, like you said, it's important to continue to investigate because there's genetics has just really um, had so many gains in the last 10, 12, 20 years. I mean, it just seems like there's new things that doctors are learning about all the time. So it is important to continue to get tested, especially if you're in the gray area, like Troy has been for a good 12 years. (laughs) You know, we started doing um, exome testing maybe around five years ago. Um, Here, other institutions um, have a different timeline, but here, that's when we started. Um, and there were some people that had an exome maybe a little bit before then, but that's when we really started to offer it more routinely. And um, we started, so there's some exomes that are from 2015 and we pulled all the exome results that were either negative or in that weird gray area. Um, and I'm, I'm half in neurology, half in genetics in the department. So it was just the neurology ones. And we pulled those and then contacted the families to see if they wanted to do a reanalysis of the already existing data. So what that means is that there's not a new sample that's needed. The, the laboratory uses the, um, the letters, the sequencing information, all of the data. It's 
some giant computer files and they would put those through their pipeline, their, um, their informatics again. And that has obviously updated because lots of different publications have happened in genetics and how we understand different genes has changed. And so by doing that, we can sometimes find a diagnosis where before there wasn't. And sometimes some of the indeterminate, some of the um, variants of uncertain significance or the gray results that maybe happened first, um, maybe they weren't even upgraded, maybe they were downgraded into more likely to be a family variant of normal. So sometimes there can be changes like that also. Um, and, and there definitely have been families where, you know, they did the workup at the appropriate workup maybe 10 years ago. Um, and then they just kind of started doing their regular life. Like they, they figured out what services, how to help their child. They um, just kind of started doing their normal life again um, or, or continuing. And then they return after a certain amount of time. And the workup is different now. And you're right that it's not necessarily that someone missed something or someone forgot to do something. It's just that the workup is different and our understanding is different. Um, so I do think that there are there is benefit to coming back. And sometimes there might be a known diagnosis maybe five or 10 years ago, um, but our information about that gene has changed. And um, in certain specialties, there are different types of clinical trials or medications that maybe weren't available at that time. But if you know what the gene is, you know what category to think about for your child. And sometimes there might be something that's available now that really wasn't even being really talked about just even a couple of years ago. And as a parent, that makes me feel so happy to know that you, your facility, went back and looked at all the different tests that had been done. I mean, that's very... You, you just, it is not a perfect process, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's so good that you actually that you did that so that parents could have that opportunity to possibly um, get new information. Um, so that's um, that's important from a parent perspective. That mm -hmm. I think as well when you do get these tests done, um, it it is important not just for your own knowledge but for other families because the more um, tests that are done, the more diagnosis that we might have, and that broadens the research to be able to understand that gene more. Um, and as uh, Megan has said in other podcasts too, is um, different trials that are open, um, you have to have that genetic test to, to be accepted. Um, so there's just, there's so many different levels of why it's important, not just for your your own family or your own child, but for other families, for, for trials, for all these different different reasons of getting these tests done. Um, uh, I wanna ask one more question about the, the tests and then we can move on because I know that our time is a little bit limited, um, but for genetic testing, um, they generally take quite a quite, I've heard both. I've heard it's, it takes quite a while and then I've, I've seen other people get the results quick. Um, what is the difference or why would it take so long? Because it can take three to six months to get your tests back. It depends a bit. There's a couple of factors. So um, some labs just have a different turnaround time. There's two labs that we, for example, there's two labs that we use for exome testing. One lab takes around three months and one lab takes around a month. So it's 
it's just a difference in labs sometimes. Um, sometimes it's a difference in the type of tests. Um, some tests just take longer to run than other tests. Um, at Rady's, the system is that a physician or a genetic counselor may put an order in for the genetic test, and then it has to go through an authorization process through insurance. And that, that time, the lab hasn't received any sample. The test hasn't started, but there is this process from the time that it's ordered to when you get the result. And so when you talk about turnaround time, um, there is a lot of variation just from a particular lab or the type of result that's being done. But sometimes that process actually includes parts of there that have nothing to do with the lab itself. It's just, um, it's just a, a big bureaucracy system that has to work itself through first. And another reason why I want to bring that up is also to go on if, if a family is getting these tests done to think about that, to, to understand that there are exterior things that are kind of working in on the process and it's not necessarily the doctor or the geneticist or the genetic counselor's fault for why it's not coming in fast. Um, it, it sucks. Like you want your answers right away, but, um, but it just doesn't always work that way. Um, and it's hard to be patient, but sometimes you just, you just have to be because there's other things working into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think we all wish that we had results faster. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, why don't we go ahead and, and lead that into how to read genetic results? Sure. So different results, um, look differently in, in general, when I look at a result, um, it sounds kind of silly, but I look at the result and just confirm the name, especially in mitochondrial, you, you get parent results sometimes. And it can be, if you're thinking that you're looking at the patient's result, the child's result, and then you're looking at it and you're confused, almost always it's because I just didn't read the name. So you start with the name um, and, and it's helpful to know what has been ordered and looking at that. Um, in general, a result will have kind of the, the name of a gene which is usually just some numbers and letters. They're not very clever. Um, so there's usually a gene name and that's kind of like the title of a book. Um, so it lets us know what, what, which book it is that the lab was, was, is telling us about. And it means that they took their um, reference of the book and looked letter by letter and maybe found a spelling change there. And sometimes spelling changes might be a piece that's missing or a piece that's extra, a deletion or a duplication. And that, that will, it would say that next to the gene. Sometimes it's some letters or a letter that is changed. Um, that's, uh, there's like a substitution that has happened. One letter switched out for another letter. Sometimes there are just a couple letters that were deleted and maybe some other ones that are inserted. There can be different ways that the letters are different. And so the next part after the gene will usually sort of say something trying to describe that. It usually starts with um, the letter C and then a dot, a period, um, to kind of tell us about that, that region. And then it'll have some numbers that will tell us exactly where in the book there's a spelling change. So if you have a book in front of you and you're trying to tell someone about a mistyped word, you want to make sure that you're letting them know about where it is. So usually that number is just literally they've counted the letters and they want to tell you about letter 127 and that instead of a letter A, they saw a letter G and that's changed the amino acid that would normally be there. Sometimes there might be a deletion of an entire chapter. So that might 
in genetics, we say that we use the word exon um, instead of the word chapter, but it might be an entire deletion that's maybe there. Um, and then the last part, we'll usually say what the lab interpreted that change to mean. So in genetics, when, when a letter change or a spelling change affects how a gene is working, um, and, and it, they're pretty confident that it would change how the gene is working. Maybe there's even other people that are described that have that spelling change already. They would call it pathogenic, um, but that's what that would mean. And then there's sort of some tiers. So something might be pathogenic and then at the way bottom it's benign. So a family variant of normal. In the middle, there's a variant of uncertain significance. So it's that gray that we've been talking about. And then there's two in the middle. So it goes pathogenic, likely, likely pathogenic. And then if you move further down, it goes variant of uncertain significance and then likely benign and then benign. And that's kind of how you can read those results. Um, sometimes it involves talking to, to um, people more on the research side or the laboratory side to understand why something was interpreted the way it was interpreted. Um, and then sometimes someone might want to do additional testing to see if they can try to tease that out a little bit more. And I, kn I know when we received um, Troy's genetic uh, test, the results, um, for someone who, I mean, I, I understand genetics, I have a degree in biology, but I'm by no means a genetic counselor or a geneticist. So, you know, we understood to a point, but it's definitely something that you want to speak to a genetic counselor or a geneticist about. It's really difficult to decipher all that information and understand what it means. And um, I have to say that I have to, you know, give you an amazing compliment because Ashley spoke so highly of you and how the conversations that you had with she and Andrew and how you just made them feel um, just very important and that you understood and that you were researching and you know you were going to find out as much information as you, as you could for them and that's so important because on our medical journey with a child you know we don't always run into those situations where you really feel like someone is connected with you and they're really working um, towards helping you figure out your diagnosis for your child so you must be extremely amazing <laughs> um, but you definitely with those results it's it's important to speak to a genetic counselor or a geneticist um, I know we immediately went on the internet and we're looking up the gene and the number and you know it, it can lead you down a very crazy road <laughs> mm -hmm. so it's very important to speak to someone like you when you do get those results yeah the results can be can be a challenge even on um you know, in our genetics field, sometimes results that can be difficult to figure out. And that's very kind of you to say. I, um, you know, I think, I think um, there's sort of, I sort of think about it like there's genetic information that I need to figure out. Like I need to go, go home and get smart about something, right? And so there's that part of it, but then there's also a part of translating that information to someone in a way that makes sense. Because otherwise you're just talking about letters and numbers and functions and that doesn't necessarily mean anything to someone. Um, and so I try to translate it into a way that at least will make somewhat sense. And maybe, maybe I'm just relaying why I'm confused about something, right? <laughs> because sometimes that's how it is too. Um, but then at least I feel like someone can feel like they're part of the experience instead of just kind of like going to an appointment and sitting in the parking lot after and being like, I don't know what that was about. Um, so I, I hope that that <laughs> comes through in the people that I meet with, but I also know that 
it is scary when something like that is happening to your child. And I can't imagine the types of feelings that people have when they are trying to figure out what's going on and they're talking to essentially strangers, right? I mean, you hopefully trust that they're, they mean well, but you don't know who they are and you're trying to figure out what's going on. And it is, it is a privilege to hear what people's experiences are and what they're worried about and hearing their types of questions and try to figure out how to best help them. And maybe that isn't, maybe I don't actually have something that I can provide, but at least I can listen to the experience. And I, I love your um, explanation of how to read life with comparing it to a book. I think that that is unique. It's a unique way to look at it. And I'm actually, I was picturing Angie's diagnosis in my head, like the printout of it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's crazy. It, it, um, it's interesting to think of it that way because um, everybody knows how to, I mean, you're taught very young how to read a book, obviously, and how to um, figure out how to navigate through a book and using that in, in genetic terms was, was really good. And I'm sure that a lot of the people that are listening are probably gonna go and like dig up their genetic results and look at it and be like, wow, that's amazing. So thank you for, for explaining it that way. Cause I know um, people are going to, it's going to help a lot of people to figure it out that way. The analogies I use are also the ways that I think about it. So it reveals something about me too when I say those analogies. <laughs> it does. And it's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> um, and, and like Megan said, um, and I've said it earlier, you really helped us on our process. Um, I was trying to not cry. When Megan uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we do that a lot on this podcast, but um, it, it helps. It does help to know that we weren't going to go to the car, like you said, and sit in the in the parking lot and be like, what just happened? Cause that has definitely happened multiple times with yes. other, other doctor's appointments. And, um, and I, I know that I hear about that all too often in different support groups, um, that I'm a part of and hearing families, uh, just starting their, I keep saying the word journey, but it is, um, starting this new life. And, and it helps to have people like you on our, on our team's, to be able to explain things and, and kind of um, be the friend that you, you can go and see in a, in a doctor's appointment. Um, it helps. And just have the compassion, yeah. you know, that this is scary for parents. You know, it is something that they don't want to go in the car and sit and think about and still be confused. I mean, of course, there's still going to be confusion. Um, you know, that's, that's no one's fault. Uh, this is, you know, especially with complex diseases. I know uh, Dr. Wigby was like, well, Troy is very complex medically. <laughs> and it's like, well, of course he is. And I don't expect her, you know, or you to have all the answers. But when you do have compassion and you explain to the best of your knowledge and it's just, it really takes a weight off of parents and it's really important. Um, so is there anything that we haven't covered or anything that you, you wanted to talk about or that I like skipped over that you maybe wanted to say? <laughs> no, I think, I think we covered, I think we covered the, what I was thinking about. Um, yeah, it's always, it's always kind of, I don't know if fun is the right word, but it's always, I don't know. I think it's fun to kind of talk through genetics with people. 
and just have a conversation about it because there, you know, it is kind of crazy when you think about it. There's just so many different thousands of genes and who we are isn't all gene based, right? It, it, people are very complicated um, and trying to sort through that is, a, is difficult. And then of course we have all of our experiences that shape all of that too. So, um, you know, I think it, I think part, I learn a lot about myself and how the world works, right, through working with other people and other families. So I, um, yeah, I'm glad to have been here or be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much. We appreciate. Yes, thank you. Um, so if anyone uh, that is listening has any questions or if you have any um topics that you would like to for us to cover in future podcasts, please send us an email. It's mitopodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram um, and leave us some comments and talk to us about how you liked our podcasts. Uh, you can tell I, I didn't add the didn't like into our podcast. <laughs> Just kidding. If, if there is something that you would like to see different or if you want us to cover, please let us know. Um, we're, we're open ears. Um, I'm Ashley and I'm Megan. And we will talk to you next time. Thank Thanks you. Guys for- for-